This morning is the first Sunday in Lent, and since the early days of the church, followers of Jesus have seen fit to make preparation over a period of 40 days for the tragedy of the Good Friday of the cross, and then, of course, of that glad morning, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter morning. And historically, Lent, therefore, has been a time of introspection. It's been a time for repentance and faith, a time to examine those aspects of your heart that aren't yet yielded to Jesus, those things that separate you, that are keeping you from him. Sometimes Christians have given themselves even over to fasting during this season as a way to cast aside even common nourishment in order to look towards that nourishment found only in Christ. Lent historically has been a time for reconciliation. There have been those who, like the younger son in the prodigal God story, left the faith, squandered the grace of God in a commitment to sin, only to realize the emptiness of such a life. So historically, Lent has been a season where the prodigals come home. Lent has also been a time for baptism. You know, year in and year out, historically in the church, there have been those who have been exploring the claims of Christ and Lent serves as a powerful tipping point to receiving instruction regarding the fundamentals of the gospel. New believers publicly proclaimed faith and received God's spirit of grace in baptism. And so in the spirit of Lent, in just a few weeks, actually, we'll be baptizing Liam Tobin and we welcome any other baptisms during the season. We just concluded a series on our relationship with money and generosity and how the gospel leads us into a life of generosity. And in a sense, the series had us looking down here, you know, looking at our relationship as we navigate worldly wealth. And so for Lent, I felt the Lord leading us to shift gears and to look up, to look up at him. And as we do understand ourselves in a new way. And when you look at God, the primary characteristic that you see is his holiness. Now, growing up, my dad, as a way for us to spend time uh, together more often, he got us involved in formative and equipping experience, especially for outdoor education. And on one occasion, our troops spent the whole Saturday learning orienteering. So we went to this massive state park that was filled with landmarks, each of those landmarks having a specific coordinate and to complete this course, we were given only a piece of paper, a pencil, and a compass. So we're tromping through the woods and across the fields, following these coordinates, trying to find these landmarks, some of which were not in the open, but were quite hidden. And I learned pretty quickly the difference of being off by just a few degrees. Not being aimed in the right direction can create a lot of confusion. And I believe there exists a great deal of confusion in the Christian life because we don't understand its aim. Is the aim to merely please God? Is he an authoritarian type that needs to keep his subjects in order? Does he need us to, to stroke his ego out of some sense of insecurity? Is the aim of the Christian life for God to please me? You know, I got this life going, a career, a dating relationship, some kids, volunteering in the community, and I just need a little help from upstairs to kind of keep this thing going. Is that what the Christian life is all about? 
We might say it with a little more theological acumen. But the aim of the Christian life is to glorify God and to enjoy. Yet with all due respect to the theologians that have gone before us, what exactly does that mean? Here's what I would like to propose, and it's kind of simple. That the aim of the Christian life and really the aim of all of human existence is holiness. And so this journey that we're taking through Lent here at Oaks Parish, it's to understand that journey, that life, what it means to be holy as God is holy. And this morning, we begin to find our coordinates by looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 25. And there we're going to see three things. The distinction of holiness, the mindset of holiness, and the fruit of holiness. The distinction, the mindset, and the fruit. And we begin with the distinction of holiness as we find it in 1 Peter chapter 13 through verse 14. There Peter writes, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. And like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Peter tells us to prepare our minds for action. And this is loaded with meaning in the original Greek. That word to prepare, it literally means to pick up your robe and be ready to run. <laughs> Think about a runner like in the ancient Olympic games in the Roman Empire or something like on the night of the Passover. Pick up your robe and be ready to run. And then Peter uses that Greek word for mind. And there the idea is the idea of reasoning as it's found in the philosopher Plato. So you put this together and Peter is saying, be ready and think intentionally about your aim in life. Think intentionally about what this life is all about. Peter is writing to the church in Rome, which at the time of his writing was largely composed by Gentiles those who historically hadn't been a part of the Jewish faith, were not familiar with the Old Testament, certainly not the Torah, but who were new to faith, who at one time had been carried along only by their passions and desires, which was a powerful force in the first century of the Roman Empire. And Peter says that their former life was largely directed by ever-changing whims of passion, desire, all of us have had the experience of a consuming desire for something. Whether that's a new purchase, maybe a geographic move, a relationship. And then we finally get there. Or we finally get that thing or we finally get in a relationship with that person. And what happens? All of a sudden, it begins to disappoint Epictetus, a philosopher of the first century in his work Discourses, speaks to that effect even in the first century. He says, those who don't have them imagine that everything good will be theirs once they get these things. And then they get them. And yet their longing and anxiety remain unchanged. So is their desire for what they don't have. Wherever you go, there you are. And Western culture, past and present, has told us that to really experience fulfillment in life, yield to your passions. 
that life and salvation are found within. Yet our experience proves otherwise. And if our aim in life is merely the fulfillment of personal desire, it will inevitably disappoint. (laughs) We know it from our experience. We know it from ancient philosophy. We know it from the scriptures. So Peter counters this notion in verse 15 and 16. He says, instead of doing that, instead of aiming your life in that direction, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourself in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's absolutely fascinating. God is calling us into communion with him in order that we would be made like him. J.I. Packer in his work, Rediscovering Holiness, he defines holiness in this way. He writes, holy in both biblical languages means separated and set apart for God, consecrated and made over to him. In its application to people, God's holy ones or saints, The word implies both devotion and assimilation. Devotion in the sense of living a life of service to God. Assimilation in the sense of imitating or conforming to and becoming like the God one serves. For Christians, this means taking God's moral law as our rule and God's incarnate son as our model. Now that's dense. That's a mouthful, J.I. Packer. How do we kind of understand that? I think there's three illumining details here for our understanding of holiness. First, holiness is being set apart. It's a state of being, it's a way of life that is distinct and can only be attributed to God himself. If we are ruled by our passions, we are essentially wanting those passions to somehow make our life distinct. But inevitably, as we said just a moment ago, our passions will fail us, they will disappoint. And so C.S. Lewis would say that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, that we were made for holiness. Secondly, there, Packer tells us that holiness is conformity. Packer says that to be a saint, a quote unquote saint, implies both devotion and assimilation. It's like wind, that fills the sails of a ship. The wind moves the ship in a particular direction. You know, there are always compelling forces that are moving us towards some aim. The question is, what are those forces that are moving in our life? What is it that fills our sails? Peter says that that can be the passions or it can be the holiness of God. Finally, Packer tells us that holiness is practical. Our ultimate aim defines practical reality. You know, traveling to LA versus traveling to Paris from Portland, it creates two different sets of practical considerations. Aim always, therefore, defines practice. And if holiness is our aim, being like God is our aim, Packer tells us that the scriptures are our rule and Jesus is our model making this journey. We're not tromping around in the woods without a compass. Scripture is our rule and Jesus is our model. 
So this is the distinction of holiness as Peter defines it. And then secondly, Peter leads us to see the mindset of holiness. Pick up again in verse 17. If you invoke as father, the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. Do you hear the tension in that passage? Call upon the father, but then also live in reverent fear. I don't know about you, but this is something I have struggled with my entire Christian life. How could God on the one hand be a loving father and on the other hand, be a judge? How do those two things work together? Now we read the Bible, sometimes it seems that God's very gracious and loving. There are times it seems like he's gracious. And some years ago, a man and I went to celebrate our wedding anniversary. It was summer. We're walking down to Vision, heading toward Ava Jean's. We're both dressed up for the occasion. Amanda looked absolutely stunning. But as we walked down to Vision, all sorts of people were seated outside various restaurants. And I began to notice people's faces. And it wasn't expressions of delight it wasn't expressions of curiosity. It wasn't expressions of celebration. They were facial expressions of disdain, of scorn. And I could read people's minds. They were saying, this is Portland, not LA. Why are you dressed like that? Why aren't you in a skirt from REI Co-op and Tevas? Why aren't you guys ready for a hike? So I'm thinking maybe that, that night we're overdressed uh, but I explained this whole story to my neighbor who lived his whole life on the West Coast. And he said, yeah, our town needs a little more sport coat. It's differently in honor of our marriage. We were deviating from standard cultural practice because our union was worth it. Even if it made us feel like we didn't belong. This is what Peter means by living in reverent fear during your time in exile. There's these two wonderful, seemingly paradoxical realities about God, that he's an impartial judge, but at the same time, he's a loving father. Peter says he's an impartial judge. And this is actually glorious. It means that God will never give up on his perfect standards that characterize a just world. Nor is he a God that plays favorite. But what all this means for each and every one of us, is that we are found out by his justice. As Paul would say, we all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. And so at first glance, when we look up at the holiness of God, when we see him as an impartial judge, our heart begins to sink. We feel hopeless in the face of such a reality. But then Peter also tells us that he's a loving father. That even before describing God as an impartial judge, Peter says, since you call upon the father. And what did this father do? He sent his son, Jesus. And as we look at that son, our life is redeemed, as Peter would say, not by worldly wealth, but by something precious, something truly valuable which is the blood of Christ. And it's here we begin to see how God is so very different from our world. 
You know, on the one hand, our culture wants justice to the point that we're willing to cancel our enemies. And on the other hand, we talk about inclusion and unconditional love. But as human beings, we cannot figure out how to bring those two things together. But notice what Peter says in verse 20 through 21. He, Jesus, was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. It's through him that you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are set on God. Jesus was chosen and revealed as the only one who can bring love. And he did that ultimately on the cross, the cross where the just judgment of God was meted out upon Christ so that instead of experiencing the judgment of God that was due us, we get to experience the love that God the Father had for the Son from all eternity. And we get to experience that love for all eternity. And when we look to God, when we set our trust and our faith on him, it clothes us in a different way where we no longer feel quite at home in this world as it exists in its present form. We are a people who are free of condemnation and yet are loved without fail by the God of the universe. It makes us a different kind of people. You know, this morning, for the very first time on a Sunday morning, I'm wearing this clerical collar. I have a new uniform. And we explain the ration. But there's one aspect that I really appreciate. <clears throat> the church is not about anyone's personality. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's, it's not about any one person. But that we stand behind something much greater. And that's the glory of Christ in his church. And as a minister, I'm merely a servant of Jesus in this church. But my first day, I'm wearing this out and about in public and I had to stop at Trader Joe's. And I'm pulling in and the parking lot is completely packed. And I begin to get irritated. And I'm like, I've got this clerical collar on, I can't be a jerk. This, I'm just pulling into the parking lot. It's like first day, you know. In, a, in an interesting way for my own personal accountability, you know, this caller's making me aware of my calling in life. The gospel does that for all of us. It makes us aware of our calling in life. And to be a Christian is to be aware that we are marked for a different life because we are called into union with God. We're clothed in a different way. We're gonna walk down the street a little bit differently. That's the mindset of holiness. Thirdly is the fruit of holiness. And here Peter really lands the plane in verse 22 through 23. He says, now that you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born anew, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Now this is absolutely fascinating 
Peter is saying that a commitment to personal holiness will result in a deep love for one another. And that's not how we think about the impact of holiness. I mean, even when I say the word holiness, what comes to mind? (laughs) It's phrases like holier than thou, which kind of carries the meaning that, that we often think about holiness as some type of moral superiority. That we're living with a sense of, of moral superiority. That's no different actually than living your life being ruled by the passions. In either case, you're simply living with a focus on yourself. And that's not actually holiness. Holiness in the words of, and our hope on God. And when you fix, when you're fixed on who God is, you actually end up forgetting about yourself in all the best ways. And isn't that what love is? Love arises from the ability to be other-centered instead of self-centered. And the only way to experience a true and a lasting other-centeredness is to know deep down inside that you are secure. And the only place where such a security is found is in God himself. And that's why Jesus came for us. I think this is why it's almost hard to imagine or to even describe or even to understand God and his holiness. God is so wholly other. He's so indescribably different from us. And why is that? He's not consumed with himself being that is so secure that he is just merely other-centered. But that's the life that we can have in him. Jesus became like us so that we could become like him. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the journey of holiness is the journey of becoming like God, which is to say, that we become a loving person. So let me kind of land here with addressing maybe two different needs here this morning. One is you might be a person that this morning you're mired in the passions. What I mean by that is that there might be some part of your life that you're keeping from God. Maybe that's control of your career, something to do with your sexuality, your money, your sociopolitical views, your ability to trust others. And sometimes if we're honest in our heart, what we're really saying to God is, God, I'm good with you having most of my life. But there's this one thing I just, I just kind of need to keep to myself. Which is to say that we believe that that one thing that we're keeping to ourselves is going to give us a better security than what God can offer us. Grow in your loyalty and affection for God. Seek daily to bring your life in alignment with who he is as revealed in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus. Look to God and him alone to love other people, to be truly other-centered. You might be a person that's mired in moral performance this morning, thinking that that's what holiness is all about. You might be loyal to God but you don't see the fruit of love in your life. And I encourage you to look again at the aim of your heart. 
Could it be that you're really focused on your moral performance and your superiority and therefore inevitably self-centered? And I invite you to, to look to God and to him alone rather than your moral performance. And you too will grow as a person of love. So to summarize what Peter's saying here about holiness as we begin to make this journey in Lent, the aim of the Christian life is holiness. The distinction of holiness is that in Christ we're being made like God. The mindset of holiness is that we are clothed differently even as we make our way in this world. Third, the fruit of holiness is love because God is love. I'll close with a quote and a final question. The quote comes from J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness. And I think this really gets at, at the ultimate aiming of our life, which is eternity. Ryle says, most people hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether or not. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its activities are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth. How do you sense God calling you into holiness as we begin the Lenten season? Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, on this Sunday morning at the beginning of Lent, we're reminded of your own 40-day journey being tempted in the wilderness. And yet because of who you are, because of the victory that you won, you remained holy as your father was holy. Lord, I pray now that you would send your light and your truth through the ministry of your Holy Spirit into our hearts, that you would illuminate within us any way in which we're relying on our passions or our own moral performance and finding fulfillment in this life. And God, help us to throw all of that overboard that our sails might be filled in a different way. And that's with your holiness. Help us to look to you and you alone. And we ask this in your mighty name. Amen.